Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Cole, and I'm in the Southern Studio this week, so just ignore the surf and seagull noises. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. And now I've got the Patreon page where you can show the podcast a little financial love. As thanks for your support, you get the weekly newsletter and there's another level involving a live chat. Check that out at patreon.com slash how good it is. You can also find that link at the website. I've got some easy trivia for ye this week. You ready? Here it is. What do the following names have in common? Nelson, Otis, Lefty, Charlie Jr. and Lucky. Once again, that's Nelson, Lefty, Charlie Jr., Lucky, and Otis. You need an extra hint? What if I added in the names Spike, Clayton, Muddy, and Boo? There you go. What do all those names have in common? I will have that answer and a little bit more at the end of the show. I'd been kicking around the idea of talking about a Steve Miller song for a little while when something kind of came in over the transom. I got a note from listener Larry Glickman who suggested that I talk specifically about Jet Airliner from the Book of Dreams album. He then noted that the song has an interesting backstory and I absolutely had to agree with him on this. So we're talking about 1977's Jet Airliner, but we're going to go beyond that a little bit this time around. And I'm going to throw an extra thanks to Larry for giving me a boost with the research. So let's start with Jet Airliner, because frankly, there isn't a ton of stuff that I can say about it. The Book of Dreams album opens with this piece called Threshold. And a lot of your classic rock stations will pair Jet Airliner with Threshold, I think because it was easier than separating the two when you played them from the album, given that there's almost no pause between them. And while Threshold is an entirely electronic piece, oddly enough, I like it better than the electronic sounds that come from Space Intro that opens up the Fly Like an Eagle album and song. On Fly Like an Eagle, the sound effects, they sound terribly dated at this point, and it just mires the song in its 1976 release date. But I think Steve Miller has a little bit of a better handle on it here, and it overall works a little bit better. Now I'm going to let you in on a little secret. For both Threshold and Space Intro, the intention was always to have them be one complete piece, which is why it's so tough to separate them for airplay. See, they only have their own titles on the record because Steve Miller is a shrewd businessman and he knows that the real money is in publishing royalties, which means publish Fly Like an Eagle as a six-minute song and you've made money on a six-minute song. Publish Space Intro as a 140-something song and Fly Like an Eagle as a 440-something song And now you're earning royalties on two songs. Likewise, put the Threshold intro on Jet Airliner, and he earns publishing money on that song because he's not making any publishing money on Jet Airliner all by itself. Now, I want to call your attention to something that, if you've never noticed it before, you're never going to not hear it for the rest of your life. For some reason, Steve Miller makes his breathing very audible on this track in multiple spots. Don't believe me? Have a listen, and remember... This time, I'm not equalizing the track to make it easier for you to hear. 
Sorry, now you're cursed forever. Have a nice life. You want to hear a weird secret? When I sing along with this song, I always sing the harmony parts. And yeah, it does get me some strange looks. Anyway, while most people identify Jet Airliner as a Steve Miller song, it wasn't written by Steve Miller, which is why he doesn't make any publishing money on it. That honor goes to Paul Pina, who is the real subject of today's show. Paul was born in January of 1950, and while he was born in Hyannis, Massachusetts, his grandparents were from Cape Verde off the western coast of Africa. So he grew up speaking Cape Verdean Creole with his family. Both dad and grandpa were musicians, and they taught Paul to play music, including this style you hear now, called Morna. Pina was born with congenital glaucoma. He attended the Perkins School for the Blind from the age of five until he graduated in 1967, and by 1970, while he was attending Clark University, he had finally gone totally blind. But by that time, he was already a known quantity in the music industry, having already played as the opening act for Frank Zappa and the Grateful Dead, and he was part of the Contemporary Composers Workshop uh, at Monterey. He also played some bass and did some backup vocals on Bonnie Raitt's debut album in 1971. That same year, Pena moved to San Francisco and he called up the Grateful Dead's office looking for work. He got it, mostly opening for bands in, in the area, but he also managed to cut an album for Capitol Records with the clever title, Paul Pena. Now, Paul Pina didn't have any major hits on it, which is probably why his second album wasn't recorded for Capitol, but it is notable for having guitarist Jeff Baxter playing on it, who you might remember from the Doobie Brothers. And it's definitely got some good material on it, especially for a debut album. This is the opening track of the album called Woke Up This Morning. drive me insane But how could I know then at the end of this day would bring relief from some of this toil and pain Where I've tried and I've tried Not to let myself hide This album was out of print for something like 40 years, but you can get it nowadays in MP3 format through Amazon and Apple Music. It is definitely worth a listen. Pena signed with Bearsville Records, which was run by somebody named Albert Grossman. Grossman is perhaps better known for being Bob Dylan's former manager. 
It was at Bearsville that he recorded his second album called New Train, and it was produced by Ben Sidron. And on New Train, we find a song called Jet Airliner. Now, there was some kind of dispute between Grossman and either Pina or his manager, depending on the source of the story. But the bottom line is that Grossman refused to release New Train, and because Pina now had a contractual obligation, he was unable to record for another label. So, now he's stuck. He can play side gigs and do some shows, but he can't record and he can't release anything else. As a recording artist, Pina was dead in the water. However, you might remember that the producer on that album was Ben Sidron. Now, Ben was at one time the keyboard player for the Steve Miller Band, and it was Sidron who gave Steve Miller a copy of the unreleased New Train album. Miller liked the album and chose Jet Airliner to record for his Book of Dreams album. But Miller had an issue with the song. In an interview with the Ultimate Classic Rock Nights radio show, quote, Jet Airliner was about those people and his treatment on the East Coast when he went out. He really didn't want to leave California and go to the East Coast and record this record, and this was a song about it, unquote. Miller went on to say, quote, It was very long, verse after verse after verse of anger, a lot of it. So I took the song and said, can I reshape it? Can I play with it? They said, you can do anything you want to with it. I remember laying out all the lyrics, typing them up on big sheets of paper. I had them all out on my kitchen table, moving the verses around. Then I got it all together and went, yeah, this will work. It's great, unquote. So there are definite differences between Pina's version of the song and Steve Miller's, but the riffs and the heart of it are still pretty much the same. Jet Airliner was released as the lead single to Book of Dreams, which came out a month later. Book of Dreams went to number two on the Billboard Albums chart and ultimately went triple platinum in sales. That's three million copies sold. Jet Airliner topped out at number eight on the Billboard Hot 100, and because of all that, Paul Pena's income was pretty much guaranteed for a long time. So let's jump ahead a little bit to 1984. Pina was looking for a Korean language lesson on a shortwave radio when he stumbled on a Radio Moscow broadcast that was discussing Tuvin throat singing. Now, the basic idea behind throat singing is that the singer produces a basic pitch and then, at the same time, produces a second pitch and sometimes more over that. Here's a quick example of two people doing throat singing. Pina was fascinated by this, and a few years later, he found a recording of throat singing, which he played repeatedly and managed to teach himself some of the techniques. In addition, Pina taught himself to speak Tuvan. 
Now, there's no such thing as a Tuvan to English dictionary. At least there wasn't one in the 1980s. So he converted Tuvan to Russian and then the Russian to English using a scanning device that converted the printed words into tactile sensations that he could read with his fingers. Did you forget he's blind? Of course you did. In 1993, Pina attended a performance of throat singing at the Asian Art Museum of San Francisco. While there, he actually did an impromptu performance, which caught the attention of Kungar Ol Undar, one of the more famous throat singers of that time. And I'll bet you didn't know famous throat th- singer was a thing. Undar invited Pina to come to Tuva and sing at the 1999 International Kume Symposium, making Pina the first Westerner to compete. He placed first in his category, and he won the audience favorite award. And, as it happens, there's footage of Pina performing at the symposium. And I've got a clip of it here. The first time you hear his voice, he's greeting the crowd in Tuvan. voice is already pretty low, and because Tuvan throat singing makes your voice lower, the Tuvans call him Sher Shimager, which means earthquake. Pino once said, my voice is lower than most Tuvans. They have a style that makes your voice lower, and when I use that, there's a slow song when I hit a note that's four white keys from the left of the piano. If you'd like to see Pina's journey to Tuva, look for the 1999 film called Genghis Blues. It won a documentary award at the 1999 Sundance Festival, and it was nominated for an Academy Award in the documentary feature category. Good stuff. But not everything was awesome for him during this time. In 1997, Pina was badly injured due to a fire in his house, and he wound up in a coma for several days because of smoke inhalation. And he also dealt with a long pancreatic illness. Originally, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and he was given six months to live. It wasn't until sometime later, in 2000, that he was correctly diagnosed with pancreatitis. But also in 2000, finally, came the release of the new Train album. I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but the record came out on a label called Hybrid Recordings, which was a subsidiary of a larger label. So presumably, Bearsville was bought out by that label, and Pina being back in the news with the newfound popularity because of the documentary meant that there was something suddenly in their archives that people wanted again. It's just a guess, but it's a pretty solid one. But all of this was a little bit on the late side for Pina. There are only two other albums credited to him after 1973. One is a Tuvan singing album, and the other is the soundtrack to Genghis Blues, so more Tuvan singing. In 2005, Pina died of complications from the pancreatitis and diabetes in his San Francisco apartment at the age of 55. I wish I had a better ending for this story, but unfortunately I don't. This isn't a story like Cher, who was huge in the early 70s and then made a big comeback in the 90s and early 2000s, or or, or Tina Turner, who broke out in the 60s and then again in the 80s. It's not even a late bloomer kind of act, like Sheryl Crow, who didn't make it big until her mid-30s, or Fitz and the Tantrums. 
Their first album came when founder and lead singer Michael Fitzpatrick was 40. It's essentially the story of a man whose popular music career was ruined by somebody's ego. And all we have left to consider are a few pieces of work and a lot of speculation about what might have been. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you about what the names Nelson, Lefty, Charlie Jr., Lucky, and Otis have in common. And then I threw in the names Spike, Clayton, Muddy, and Boo to make it even easier. Did you get it? Well, they're all pseudonyms. Nelson and Spike belong to George Harrison. Muddy and Charlie Jr. are pseudonyms for Tom Petty. Lucky and Boo are more commonly known as Bob Dylan. Otis and Clayton are usually identified by the name Jeff Lynn, and Lefty would be Roy Orbison. Well, it's all right. And by now, I'm sure you've guessed that if you put them all together, you get the Traveling Wilburys. They each have two names because between the first album and the third, they took on new names. And of course, Roy Orbison died shortly after the first album was released. So he didn't appear on the second one, which means he only has one Wilbury name. In fact, Orbison's death was the reason they all took on second names, since the members felt that the group dynamics had shifted as a result of the loss. For what it's worth, session drummer Jim Keltner, who played on all the tracks on both albums except for Handle With Care, is credited as Buster Sideberry. Gary Moore, who played lead guitar on one track for the second album, was credited as Ken Wilbury, and George's son Donnie Harrison uh, played some overdubs on the 2007 bonus tracks, so he received credit as Ayrton Wilbury. And finally, I wanted to point out that Roy Orbison was in fact left-handed, hence the name Lefty Wilbury, but he did play musical instruments right-handed, so I'm sure this name confused a lot of people. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash howgooditis. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thank you, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when you take on me or you take me on. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.